All right, Luke's Gospel, chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, as we hear the word of the Lord. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Were those eighteen on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Let's pray. Our gracious and merciful Father who is in heaven, Lord, you bring to nothing the counsel of the nations. You frustrate the plans of the peoples, but yet your purpose stands forever because you alone are God. You alone brought all that is into being. You alone sustain this universe, and you alone give to all men life and breath and everything. And we praise you, Lord, for this wonderful gift that you have given us this morning the most wonderful gift of salvation that we are here or that we are gathered to hear of this morning from your word through our Savior Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen our hearts this morning to receive from your word. God, that you would work in us that we may set aside the things, the distractions that weigh us down that we have brought in from this week and that we would turn wholly to you at this time, our focus and our eyes upon Christ. And that we would receive His gospel, being built up, being edified. That, Lord, we may be conformed to the image of Christ. Lord, and brought to more fully and faithfully trust in Him, and not ourselves. Not that He alone gives us salvation. Lord, may You be glorified now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's wonderful to be with you this morning. Uh, as our brother said earlier, I am uh, the candidate for the pastorate uh, there at SGRC in Donovan. And so first and foremost, let me tell you that the church there sends her greetings and her love to you. Um, you are often in the prayers there and often on our minds and hearts. And so I'm glad to come and, and get to be with you, get to know you guys this morning, but most importantly to bring the word of the Lord um, to you from Luke's Gospel in chapter 13. You know, some passages in the Bible are more easily understood than others. Um, they are all clear, uh, but some are more easily to understand than others. And that being said, this one we have this morning is quite straightforward. There's not a lot of difficult language in it. Uh, it's not a long, drawn-out parable uh, or system of thought. It's really neat, short, and concise. Uh, basically this, all will face the judgment of God if they do not earnestly turn from their sin and turn to the Lord. That is Jesus' straightforward point that He makes in this text. But what is here for us this morning is wonderful instruction on the importance of biblical perspective. Now, we all know something of how important uh, perspective can be in this life uh, through the various situations 
and trials that we find ourselves within. But just to give you kind of an example this morning, so my wife and I just recently bought a home there in Donovan, and it's a, what you would call a fixer-upper. And so any of you who have ever owned a home that's not brand new, sometimes, unfortunately, even if it is brand new, you know problems arise. So for us, we're, we're digging into this thing. We've got some things we need to redo. And as you start to peel back the layers, you start to unfortunately find more and more problems and more and more things you have to fix and more and more things that are going to cost money. Now, I share that with you because I will admit and confess to uh, my own sinfulness in that as throughout this week as I started to find some of these problems, see some of these things, the thought crept into my mind of, why me? <laughs> well, why, why couldn't this just be perfect, no problems, no issues? Why couldn't I just, you know, I've got, you know, the perfect deal here? Now, I share that because inherently in that thinking, what I'm saying is, well, other people have problems. Why should I be the one to have a problem, right? Why should I be the one to have to deal with this difficulty? And inherently, I'm, I'm thinking of others that it's okay for them, but I shouldn't have to deal with it. Or, maybe at best, even if that's not my perspective, maybe at best I'm saying, well, we shouldn't any of us have to deal with any problems. Everything should just be great and grand and perfect for all of us, all of the time. Well, here in this text... We have some individuals that come to Jesus that have something of a perspective like that. They don't understand why there is difficulty and suffering in the world. And more insidiously, we may say, they think of themselves that they should not have to deal with this difficulty, but there are others that perhaps should and so what Jesus does then in, in interacting with these people is He challenges that typical human assumption with a dire warning that we should not think that uh, some people are more worthy or deserving of ease or of blessing or benefit than others. Or conversely, we should not think that some are more deserving of punishment and judgment and condemnation than others. Instead, Jesus points out that no, the amazing grace of God is that all are likewise worthy of the judgment and punishment of God. As he says here, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So the people that come to Jesus, their focus, their perspective is misplaced. They're amazed that some people would suffer in such a great way. Whereas Jesus turns that around on them and says, No, no, no. The amazing thing about grace is not that some don't receive it, but rather that any receive it at all. And so given then that the text is fairly straightforward this morning in a typical sermon... We would just walk through line by line and follow the flow of thought. But as we've seen, there's really one central point here that Jesus makes two times with the same phrase there in verse 3 and in verse 5. So with that being said, I just want to lay before you this morning uh, kind of the outline, and that is this. First, we're going to look at the flaw in the thinking. We're going to dive into uh, what the problem was with these individuals, their, their thought process as they came to Jesus. And then we're going to look at the two uh, other elements, which is law and gospel in this text. 
So the flaw in the thinking, the law of God, and the gospel as Jesus conveys it this morning in Luke 13, 1 through 5. So now just a little bit of a word on the setting here. Jesus is, of course, addressing a crowd of many thousands of people. You can see this starts to form back in chapter 12. And he's gathered, as he so often was, with these people, teaching them the things of God. And this certain group uh, happens along at that time, and they report to Jesus this terrible tragedy. Right, that we read about occurring to some Galileans who were murdered by Pilate's men there in the temple. And the response that Jesus gives them is essentially a rebuke of sorts, which, which enlightens us to their assumptions, and it instructs us in how we ought to understand sin and suffering and tragedy in this world. Now, what we're getting at here, as we've already made mention, these people came with a certain set of assumptions. Our question is, what were those assumptions? For that, we have to dive into a little bit of the worldview that these uh, Jewish individuals would have had at this time. Scholars and theologians have come to call this worldview, at least one aspect of it, the retribution principle. Now, that's a fancy way of saying or describing, rather, a way of thought which says that God brings prosperity to the righteous and He brings judgment or condemnation to the wicked. That, in a sentence, is what we mean by the retribution principle. Now, these individuals probably would have held that view um, that was widely held, and it's even attested to in the thought of the Old Testament As we're going to see, the problem is not so much in that way of thought. At the end of the day, God is just. And therefore, ultimately, God will bring favor to the righteous and He will bring judgment and condemnation to the wicked. The flaw is in how these individuals think of people. We may even say that the flaw is in how they understand the human condition. Because inherently, they're coming with the thought that people can be righteous. That is, in a post-fall world, that some individuals can be worthy of God's favor. And others can choose not to live in an upright and righteous way and therefore be worthy of God's condemnation. Jesus looks at them and basically levels the playing field and says, no, the problem is in how you understand yourself. Yes, God is just. Yes, God will bless the righteous. But there is no one righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, let's say a word, though, about these individuals. We could assume that they were in the crowd and that they had been listening to Jesus' teaching that... You can go and read about in chapter 12. In chapter 12, he addresses a myriad of different things. Just to survey them for you quickly, he's addressed the hypocrisy, especially of the Pharisees. He's addressed fearing God rather than fearing men. He's addressed what it means to profess Christ, to reject worldliness for the heavenly treasure that is Christ. He's addressed what it means to trust in the Lord to provide and to not be anxious. He's addressed what it means to be diligent, to live actively in light of the gospel. Obviously a moral imperative there. 
He's addressed the reality that his teaching will bring division, that they should therefore know the times, and that they should settle with their accusers. And so Jesus is kind of going back and forth between explaining the gospel to them and then explaining gospel imperatives to them, what it means to live out the gospel. And so you can imagine, if you've ever been convicted by preaching or teaching, which I would assume that most of us this morning have, then imagine what it would be like to sit before the Lord and Savior Himself and hear Him directly teaching in this setting. Certainly that would bring a certain level of conviction. But I point all this out to say this. It doesn't seem in the text that these individuals were necessarily gathered in the crowd for all of this teaching. You see here we're told that some were present at that very time, but in reality the Greek word there translated were present can honestly in context be translated more properly had come. Indicating that they weren't there gathered, they had kind of happened along. They maybe happened along the large crowd. They noticed that, okay, here was this Jesus teaching them, and so they stopped in because they felt they had some news to tell. In fact, where it says that they told, the word is apongelo, which means to announce or to proclaim. It's what you do with a very important message when you feel like you have something worthy of note. And so they in their hearts felt like, okay, Jesus, he needs to know this. Apparently he hasn't heard about what happened to these poor souls, the Galileans there in the temple. And so we must tell him so that he's brought up to speed. And the problem, as we've said though, is that they come forth ultimately looking for self-justification through their flawed understanding of what we have called the retribution principle. That God will prosper the righteous and punish the wicked. They look then at these Galileans who were murdered in the temple, their blood being mingled with the sacrifices, and their thought is, wow, they must have been some really terrible sinners. Not unlike what Jesus' disciples asked Him in John 9 about the blind man there in Jerusalem. Remember, they happen along and they say, Jesus, what sin? Was it of this man or of his parents? Was there that he was born blind? And of course, there Jesus explains what was not his sin or his parents' sin, but rather that the works of God might be displayed in him. But here, Jesus does not appeal to the works of God, but rather he looks at the individuals and says, You should not think yourself more righteous. You should understand that all are worthy of the judgment of God. Now regarding this principle, I don't want to be uh, unclear on this. This principle that they were coming with is found in Scripture as I already mentioned. If you go all the way back to the beginning and you look just after the fall in Genesis chapter 4 and the interaction between God and Cain in Genesis 4-7 when Cain became upset about his sacrifice not being received from the Lord, God told him, If you do well, will you not be accepted? That is, in essence, this principle we're talking about. Likewise, if you read the wisdom book of Job, there the assumption of Job's friends throughout that book is that God prospers the righteous and punishes the wicked. That's why they can't comprehend why all this is happening to Job. They're saying, Job, you must have done something terrible. There must be some terrible sin in your life that you are receiving these terrible things from God. 
As one says in Job 4, who that was innocent ever perished. Now, we find out later that they didn't have the right perspective and they're rebuked for it. But the error in their perspective was in thinking that any is righteous, just like these individuals here who come to Jesus. They bring about the story of the Galileans, but Jesus does them one better because sometimes those in Jerusalem would look upon those outside of the city, even their fellow Jews, as, you know, slightly less than. And of course the Samaritans we know were way outcast, but even fellow Jews from outside of Jerusalem were sometimes looked down upon as not as holy, not as deserving. And so Jesus refers to another story in verse 4 about some from within Jerusalem. He says, Those eighteen on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others in Jerusalem? Now, we don't know of that event uh, from any other literature than right here in Luke 13. But the pool of Siloam was there in Jerusalem, so the tower was probably right there beside it. And apparently it fell and killed 18 individuals. Now, certainly we could say that that would seem like an act of God for a tower to fall over on some poor people and and kill them. That's a very uh, unfortunate event. And even in our modern vernacular, sometimes we'll say when something uh, crazy befalls somebody, we'll say, you'll hear people say, well, they must not have been living right. That same sort of idea creeps into our thinking. And so Jesus appeals to this, says these were Jews from Jerusalem right here in town, and yet they had this terrible calamity come upon them where they were sinners. Obviously, emphatically, Jesus responds with, No, they were not worse sinners, but rather all are likewise under the judgment and condemnation of God. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So in this way, the flaw in their understanding and the flaw in the human understanding of ourselves, or rather the flaw is in the human understanding of ourselves, when we hold that there is any righteousness within us, it leads us to this sort of thinking. To look down upon those who suffer in a greater way than we ourselves do. And to figure them as more sinful than we ourselves are. And so the first thing that Jesus calls them to do is basically quit looking at others and trying to justify yourselves based on that. But instead, look within yourself. Look at your own heart. Search your heart. And see what is therein. Again, there is no one righteous. No, not one. We read in Psalm 14 and verse 3. Which brings us then to the point where we must consider the law in this text. And yes, we refer to the law in the New Testament. So often we think that the law is only the Old Testament and only the gospel is in the New Testament. But in reality we find both law and gospel throughout the scriptures. And they are not in this way opposed to one another, but rather they come together. For the law, as the word tells us, is good. It's the sinfulness of man that brings about a curse. So where is the law in this text? Well, the law in this text is that Jesus indirectly declares that all people are what? Law breakers. 
you will all likewise perish. Well, again, the same thing that Job's friends asked. Who that was innocent ever perished? Well, no one who is innocent perishes. Only the guilty perish and are condemned. Jesus goes straight to this then. It says, therefore, you will all likewise perish. It was Martin Luther who said that justification is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. And that is absolutely true. But I would submit to you this morning that if that is true as it is, then depravity is the doctrine upon which our understanding of justification stands or falls. Of course, by depravity, what we're referring to is our sinfulness or the corruption of human nature, the the problem that lies within us. As we've already stated, the view rejected by Jesus here in this text is that some are less depraved or less sinful than others and therefore worthy of blessing. Now this has been, this failure in understanding has been a huge problem throughout church history and quite early on perhaps you've heard of what is referred to as the Pelagian heresy. Now this came to be condemned by a couple of church councils in the 5th and 6th century but the Pelagian heresy named for a man named uh, Pelagius basically taught that man is neutral in his nature. In other words all people from Adam even to the present day, are born in a neutral state, not predisposed toward good nor evil. In other words, we're all born just like Adam was before his fall. And therefore, man has the full, complete ability to live perfectly righteously and therefore to merit God's blessing and eternal life. Now, we've already read the text a couple of times that shows us why that thinking is a problem. The Scriptures are quite clear. There is no one righteous. And sin is not merely an effect of our circumstances or our setting in life. Sin ultimately is not something external to us. It's something that lies within us. And therefore, it is something that lives within us. It is a true corruption of our nature. Now, I bring that out not to say that these individuals questioning Jesus were probably Pelagian in their thinking. Most likely, they were more what we would call semi-Pelagian. In other words, they had the Old Testament Scriptures. They knew there was a problem within mankind. They knew that sin was an issue. But the the semi-Pelagian train of thought says, okay, yeah, there's a natural corruption. There's even in some sense an original corruption that's in all who are descendants of Adam because of Adam's sin, but they don't view it as what we would call total or radical. They believe it's just a part of us that's corrupted, but there still remains a part of us that is good, and therefore that can cooperate with grace and therefore live righteously and earn God's favor and God's vindication of them. So these individuals coming to Jesus, bringing this train of thought, probably would have been quite shocked to hear what Jesus responds with. 
condemning them with the law, saying, No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, I had a very unfortunate um, encounter with his way of thinking. A man I was once um, called to minister to, his name was Tom, and he was the husband of a, a lady that was a member in the church that I was pastoring. Um, and I had never seen him prior to this day. Um, even when I went to their house, he was never around, and he never came to church. Uh, so it's the first time I was coming across him. But he came to a crisis of health in his life. He, he felt that he didn't have much longer to live. And so he called me to come to his house and to speak with him. So, of course, I went, uh, sat down with him, started to hear his story. And for the better part of an hour, he went through telling me um, the things he had done in his life, the, the virtuous things he had done in his mind for God, and also the great suffering that he had endured along the way. And so for this time, I'm sitting just listening, hearing him tell his, his story. And what became clear is that he was not to a point where he wanted to hear the gospel. But rather, why he had called me over is because he wanted to share this story and he wanted some assurance that he was going to go to heaven. In other words, as a minister of the gospel, or the minister of the Lord, he wanted me simply to say, Yeah, buddy, God approves of you. You're good. Don't worry about it. Well, obviously, I could not tell him that. I could not say, yes, you were right with the Lord, because what he was appealing to was all of his own works, and in his mind, uh, some merit that he had gained by the way he had lived his life. And he became, unfortunately, quite angry when I explained this to him. Because I took him to the book of Ephesians, to verses 8 and 9, which tell us, For you have been saved by grace through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, that no one may boast. And I pointed him back then to the grace and the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Where there's no sin, where there's no transgression, there's no need of mercy. There's no need of grace. There's no need of forgiveness. Only where there's been transgression of the law do we need saving from the just punishment that comes to those who break the law? And so the retribution principle that we've mentioned before is ultimately one of works. It is law which says, do this and live. The problem that I shared with this man, that Jesus is sharing with his hearers in this text, is that we cannot do which is why judgment is imminent. Now we must continue to move along then to the consolation in this text, what brings us to the good news in this text. But I do want to pause for a moment because the question comes up here, and that is this. How do we make sense of the fact that not all suffer in the same way in this life? Obviously that was the question that the people in verse 1 were bringing. And it's a worthy one for us to pursue. 
How do we make sense of the fact that not all suffer in the same way in this life? In other words, why does one who lives an evidently wicked life, who has nothing to do with seeking the Lord, nothing to do with seeking Him in His grace, and instead lives only for himself, why does that individual seem to never suffer any great calamity in this life while another who is faithful suffers greatly? Why is that? Well, in a word, we're not told why. The secret things belong to the Lord. We're not given an answer as to the details. However, our confession summarizes very well Uh, something that's enlightening on this point, where it tells us that God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by His most wise and holy providence, according to His infallible foreknowledge, and the free and immutable counsel of His own will, to the praise of the glory of His wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Now, is that an answer to the question? No. I suppose it is an answer. It doesn't answer why. It doesn't tell us why one individual suffers more greatly than another in this life. But what it does is remind us of the confidence the Scripture gives us in that God sovereignly reigns over all things at all times from beginning to to the end. Therefore, nothing befalls me or another that is not outside of the power of His will. Which gives me great encouragement whenever I come to the texts that remind me, such as Romans 8, that God does work all things together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And so for the one who trusts in the Lord, even suffering is for His good. Even suffering is ultimately for the salvation of his soul insofar as it teaches him to lean and trust upon the Lord in faith. Now we said at the beginning this is about perspective. So what's the perspective that we bring out of all of this? Well first is this. The only thing we really deserve is the worst suffering possible because we have all transgressed against a holy and righteous God. And secondly, anything less than the worst suffering possible is, in fact, mercy from God. Now that helps slightly. It's true. But let's be clear, that's not good news. In other words, that is not the gospel. The gospel is not that, well, we'll suffer less, and therefore we should be grateful. No, the gospel is that we shall have eternal life. That is, those who trust in the Lord. Which brings us then to the gospel in this text. And that is in this phrase, in verse 3 and in verse 5, unless you repent. Now how you ask is that the gospel conveyed? Because that right there tells us that Jesus is extending a merciful and gracious opportunity to be free from the wrath and judgment of God that is to come. He's extending the offer of the gospel to His hearers. He's reminding them of the law that yes, they are condemned under the law, but He's extending an opportunity for grace to them that they may be saved. In other words, those that do repent shall not perish. 
So again, be not amazed that some suffer greatly in this life, but rather be amazed that God offers the, offers the opportunity for some to be saved. One of my favorite lines in the hymn Amazing Grace is a line that says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." Now as a new Christian, I mean, most even non-Christians, I think, at least in this area, are familiar with the hymn Amazing Grace. And as a new Christian, I I struggled to understand that. Because coming from a non-believing perspective to now believing perspective, I, I still had the question of, okay, we talk about how amazing grace is, we talk about joy in the Lord and and just, you know, living a life that you have peace and assurance. And then you turn right around and say, that is you Christians, that this grace makes you fearful. How does that fit together? What are we talking about there? Well, Newton, in writing that hymn, was pressing into a profound truth. And that is, this same grace that gives us salvation and assurance begins working in us by opening our eyes to our own sinfulness and condemnation before God. And so grace teaches our heart to fear because before we receive the grace of God, we are in a similar position to these individuals that came to Jesus. We don't see and wrestle with our own sinfulness. Therefore, we don't recognize the danger that our souls are in or the need for God's grace. But once we see it, once our eyes are opened, we're changed. And we are taught to fear God, who has the ability to cast both body and soul into hell. Which is why then, what's the next line of that hymn? But grace my fears relieved. The same grace that opens our eyes to the Savior who purchased salvation for His elect. So now let's take just a moment then talking about grace, we're talking about repentance, perhaps we should not get ahead of ourselves without asking the question, well, what is it? For that, we can look at the shorter catechism, which answers very concisely and clearly. Question 87, it tells, asks us, what is repentance unto life? We read there, repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. Now lexically, especially in ancient Greek, the word used there, translated repent, simply means to change one's mind. But of course... The Greek-speaking Jews, and then later the authors of the New Testament, co-opted that word and applied it to this reality that occurs in the Christian life. And so in the New Testament, as it is used, it is both a change of mind, but also a change of heart. Now, what we mean by that is it's not merely an intellectual assent, right? It's not merely saying, okay, I didn't believe that Jesus was Lord and Savior, and now I believe that, so, okay, I'm good. It's certainly not less than that. But it goes beyond that. As we read in the answer to the catechism question, it includes a grief and a hatred of sin 
which turns from it and unto God. That gets to the heart of it. It's a change of mind, but it's a change of heart that results in action. Which is why, in another place, when Paul is describing the gospel message that he's preached in Acts 26 and verse 20, he describes it as calling the Jews and the Gentiles to repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Now there, he puts together repent and turn to God. Two distinct concepts that are used to indicate a single action. What I mean by that is if you think about turning from something, can you turn away from one thing without turning to something else? No. For example, if you think about, let's think of something kind of silly, but let's just think there's a grave danger in front of me. Say it's a building that is on fire, and I'm just strolling along towards it, going to walk right in through the burning front door. If I just turn my head, but I continue to walk in that direction, heading for the building, have I turned? No. I'm looking away, but I'm continuing the same way that I've been going. We would all agree that a true turning would be to turn the other way and to go away from the danger toward safety. And so when it comes to repentance of sin, the idea is this. We have this sin that we're holding on to and we're facing this way. Instead, we turn from that and we turn to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In this way, it's why we see that repentance and faith are really just two sides of the same coin. Because you may ask, well, I thought we were saved by grace through faith, not grace through repentance. But in so many ways, we see in the New Testament that faith and repentance come together because they really involve the same sort of action. And that is a childlike trust and resting and receiving of Christ. In this way, that's why the confession can say that repentance is an evangelical or a saving grace. It's because like faith, it's not something that we bring about in ourselves. It's not a work that we perform, but rather it is a grace that God brings about within us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And He enables us then to turn from sin and to rest upon Christ. And so what Jesus then offers to all who will receive His Word is this grace. He calls out for them to turn from their sin. And to turn to Him. I'll mention one more thing from our confession, and that is this. It warns us that repentance itself is not to be rested in as any satisfaction for sin. That's why we're clear that repentance is not a work. It's not a cause for our pardon or for our justification. But yet it is Necessary, Because it is a response of faith. The receiving, the resting, the trusting in Jesus Christ. You see, repentance is not a work, it is not law, it is gospel. As we bring towards a close, I want to read to you from Psalm 
37. Psalm 37, verses 39 and 40. The psalmist writes, The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in Him. The first question we might ask of that text, well, who is righteous? The salvation of the righteous? I thought no one is righteous. Well, how that term can be applied to any man is found in that last line in verse 40. Because they take refuge in Him. He alone is righteous. And as the Psalms put it other, other places, He covers them in the shadow of His wings. And therefore what is true of Him is rightly applied to those who take refuge in Him. That is, that the one who abides in the Lord by faith is rightly considered righteous. And that ultimately is what we see in the blood of Christ who came to pay for the sins of His people. His blood covers them so that when God looks at the one who rests in the Lord, who trusts in Jesus Christ alone, He looks upon one who is justified, who is made right, who is counted as righteous because of Christ's righteousness. And that's why salvation is a work of God alone. It's nothing we can do or bring about in ourselves. It is a receiving of what God has done for us. And so the one who takes refuge in Him, who turns to Him, who repents and runs to Him, that person is righteous by faith because of the Lord. So the amazing thing here is that Jesus made the way for our abominable sin to be paid for in Himself and for us to go free out of abundant love for His people. As we mentioned in Sunday school, nothing about this gospel limits the preaching of it. For Jesus was before a crowd of thousands time and time again and He proclaimed the gospel of repentance and faith freely to all. For He was calling out His sheep forth from the masses. And so as we hear this gospel this morning, we hear that all who would receive the word of the Lord may be saved because of the cross. No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. A dire warning to be sure but a wonderful offer of grace to the one who will receive it. For all of us this morning, believer and unbeliever alike, if you have never heard or trusted in the gospel, the text beckons us all. Turn from sin. Rest in Christ by faith and be assured on the testimony of God's Word that if you rest in Him, your sins are forgiven. And eternal life is yours. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your mercy that You have brought to us. And we thank You, Lord, that You have saved us from our sins and that, Lord, You have freed us from the curse of the law. And that, Lord, we 
that we have to depend upon ourselves, which would be an impossible means of salvation, but we can rest alone in Your perfect work, which is sure, which is certain, which is unfailing. God, we pray, give us greater assurance by this gospel alone. And I pray, help us, Lord, to be ardent advocates, Lord, and witnesses of it. I pray for, Lord, Covenant Reformed Church in this community, for SGRC and Donovan. Lord, for the churches in the presbytery, help us to continue to proclaim boldly and clearly and simply the gospel in this word to our neighbors around us, and to worship, gathering, clinging to the ordinary means of grace. Lord, in the perfect means that you have appointed to the ends that, Lord, you have purposed. We love you, Lord. We thank you that you have brought us into this and that, Lord, you uh, continue with us in sanctification, working in us that which is pleasing to your will. Lord, may it always be a greater and greater uh, manifestation in us as we are conformed to the image of your Son. We love you, we praise you, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.